You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Thank you and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast and our Facebook Live webcast. My name is Rick Ritchie and I want to welcome you and thank you for being here and I want to welcome special guest. He's a friend of mine and we've known each other for coming close to 20 years that we've been working together in the fitness industry uh, and he is the author of this here book, Smart got a copy. Uh-huh, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I do have it. I've got a nice little quote and uh, a little a written thing in here. It says, uh, Rick, and then next to it, it says, Dr. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I gave it to you when I was out there uh, that year. Yeah. That's right. It's been so cool to be on this fitness journey with you. Thanks for your friendship and congrats on all the success. Well-deserved. And I can certainly say that back at you, my friend. Uh, welcome, Pete McCall. Thanks for being on with us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your inviting me, and, and good to see you guys this morning. And it's good to see you. So uh, uh, tell me a little bit about what's been going on with you since we last worked together. So not not seen each other or spoken together since we last actually worked in the same business, the same job, the same role together at Town Sports International when we were doing educational content uh, and delivery for that company. Well, no, and, and, and so that's actually what, what I like about that, and what's cool about this is back then, so Rick and I used to teach the NASM CPT program as a two-day format, the live workshop, and Rick, I believe you're still teaching that, right? Yeah, yeah, we're doing yeah. a one-day format, but yeah, we're doing okay. that with NASM. But, it, it, so what we used, yeah, it was one day, I guess it was a one-day format, you're right, um, and what we used to do, we used to teach that internally for uh, the people at the health club, Town Sports International, I was in Washington Sports Clubs, and Rick was in New York Sports Clubs. From there, I went on to become, well, I was doing my, my master's degree through CUP, through the NASM program. And that's what I love about this, Rick. I mean, back then, you and I really were, um, we really enjoyed what we were learning from NASM. And now, you know, so many years later, to actually have the opportunity to really still be involved and still have an influence is just, I think, um, just really cool. You know, it just shows that you got to kind of keep your eye on the prize. But I went from being a trainer to doing being a director of education for a couple of years. I went to go work for another personal training certification organization where I helped create a lot of their education programs. And for the last five to seven, about seven years now, I've been a freelance consultant where I've been writing. I've been doing education programs. I teach the online C, uh, CPT program for NASM. And then I do content development for NASM. I've been doing more and more writing blogs and helping out. I mean, I'm really... That's what's a lot of fun with it is being able to really take the information that, that I've learned and take the, the practical experience I've developed and really help a new generation of fitness professionals learn how to, to do the job. Well, you've been doing that for sure, man. It's been good. Uh, I love coming across articles that that either you write or sometimes uh, the, this is what I like. I'll be uh, somebody will reach out to me for uh, to be a, a subject matter expert quoted in an article and I'll open it up and read it. And there you are in the same article with me. And that has happened multiple times. Yeah, no, I always, I, I love that too, man. That always brings a smile to my face when I find out that a reporter reached out to both of us and, and you know, little do they know. Um, and, that, and what, what, I, what it, this is, but this is an important, I think, lesson, Rick, for people in the fitness industry. And on Thursday, I would be on a call with um, SCW 
And what's interesting is one of the people on the call with SCW is somebody I worked with more than 20 years ago. My first uh, my first job in fitness was actually as a health club sales membership salesperson. And that is a really yeah, that was not the right right role for me. But Bill McBride and I were both sales guys at the same time with the same company. And now 23 years later, you know, he's you know, he's doing a thing. He's he went the uh, operational route and I went the education route. So the lesson of people is you never know when you'll work with somebody again. You don't want to burn bridges. As a friend of mine says, the fitness industry family tree is like a telephone pole. So you will, you know, our paths keep crossing over the years. And you, you just got to be, you got to keep that in mind that this is really, it's a relatively small community and you can either develop a really good name for yourself or you can go the opposite route. <laughs> you know, but it's just one of those, it's one of those way, way, things to think about long term. Yeah, that is very true. And, you know, it's, it's nice to, to see some of the work that you've done. I get the chance to listen to your voice on the, the podcast all about fitness that you do. And you get to have some wonderful guests on there. And I was really, really jealous. And so then uh, NASM let me start doing this with wonderful guests, too. So now, <laughs> now I get to follow in your footsteps on what you were doing. Uh, we're doing this as a webcast. And we're, we're excited about the, the program, excited about having you on. And one of the things that we talked about recently is some of the new stuff that you've been working on. And, uh, and, and I believe that you talked about like aging, which I start to feel is more and more appropriate for me. <laughs> as, as honestly, as I, I feel like in some ways I've been broken since I was in my early 20s, which is probably why I went deep into the corrective exercise route. But as I'm getting older and now uh, inching up into my mid 40s, and you know, some of those things have gone away and I've gotten some new things and, uh, and, and, and I see that continually happening. But one of the interesting things is I've recently started doing some high intensity interval training. And some of the things that I thought was going to be really painful and really um, injurious to me based off of my previous experience just exercising actually don't bother me at all when I do high intensity stuff. Um, and I know you've been looking into aging, you've been looking into high intensity interval training, metabolic conditioning. Uh, you have a chapter on metabolic conditioning in your, your smart workouts book. Um, talk to me a little bit more about kind of that, that path, like what sent you down that path. And then let's get into some of the science behind it and what it is that you see and some of the things that you're writing about. Uh, that's, uh, no, I, I, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this question first, Rick. And the problem is with doing a podcast of my own is, is I, I can never turn off the interviewer. <laughs> I can never take off the interviewer hat. But let me. But but I want. I'll, I'll use this to make a point. When you do the hit training, how long do you do the the workout for? Like, how long is your hit workout? Uh, I mean, the actual workout itself is not that long. Maybe thirty minutes. Um, you know, we do a warm up, prep. We do a little cool down at the end. Uh, generally go to a class and those classes are 55 minutes, um, but maybe 30, maybe a few minutes, uh, a little bit less, maybe sometimes a little bit more than 30 minutes. Uh, well, it, it, well, because the, the thing is, I think where, where hit gets misapplied and, and for listeners or people listening, tuning in, I also do a lot of education. I'm like the global right now, I, I guess if you want to use a title, I'm the global master trainer for Stairmaster. For both, I work with both Stairmaster and Nautilus as well. And Stairmasters, everything we've done with Stairmaster has been centered around high-intensity interval training. And when you look at the research on HIT, it really is has to do with intensity and not duration. So especially as we get older, you don't need to do, you know, you don't really need to do longer than a 15, 20-minute HIT workout 
because as long as you're doing the appropriate intensity on the intervals, that's all you really need. And there's a tremendous amount of research. Um, one of the ones I like uh, referring to is by Sean and, and colleagues. It came out in 2018. And what they did, Rick, is they, they had three groups. They had a treadmill group that ran 30 minutes three times a week on a treadmill. They had another treadmill group that did a four-minute Tabata on the treadmill. And then they had a bodyweight group that did a four-minute bodyweight circuit, four-minute um, Tabata bodyweight circuit. And then they had the control group. It was a 16-week study, so it's a little bit longer normal study period than eight or 12 weeks. Like, like they use. And for listeners, um, the study periods are usually eight to 10 or eight to 12 weeks to coincide with an academic semester. So you're, there's a relatively short time sample for this. But over 16 weeks, what they found was the treadmill, the, the hit training on the treadmill got the best results, but the body weight interval training got the second best results, better results than, than the 30 minutes of continuous running on the treadmill. So it was really interesting because what would you rather do, run 90 minutes a week on a treadmill or do three, four-minute Tabatas? So you do it 12 minutes a week. And, and what they found, they measured like they measured weight loss, they measured aerobic capacity, and they really they found that it was, it was the, the intensity of the training, not necessarily duration, that had, that had the outcome, that had the better outcomes. And when they look at that, they've actually started looking. And one thing to keep in mind is before the 2000s, HIT was used primarily only for high-level athletes, for collegiate and professional-level athletes. So all the research up until the early 2000s was on athletes, you know, high-performing athletes. It's been since the early to mid-2000s when they've been looking at HIT for just the average population. And what they're finding is that it, it, it's great for people that are fighting chronic diseases. It's great for older adults. It, it's really very effective, again, being mindful of working on intensity and not volume. So meaning that one four-minute Tabata or one like six-minute ladder workout is all somebody would really need to do in order to really get a good outcome of that. I like that. When you were talking about the Tabata, that, uh, that's, that's kind of a key that starts to drive a lot of people or, or it was one of the training styles that drove a lot of people towards the, the high-intensity interval training. Um, I think one of the reasons that it wasn't thought about as something to be applied is that there was an assumption, and in a, in a rightful assumption, that there's not a correlation between anaerobic training and getting an aerobic effect. But we're starting to see that the, the lines are more blurred than that, that anaerobic training can indeed support aerobic capacity, but it doesn't actually work so well necessarily the other way around. What do, what do you see on that? No, you're absolutely right, and that's a great point because what and that was what surprised that was one of the things that um, Izumi Tabata's research found, and, and they were working with speed skaters, and they're looking for a way to how could they support um, VO2 aerobic capacity training for speed skaters, and what they found was that the relatively short 20 second burst of really high intensity uh, really helped improve aerobic capacity, and what they find is that one of the things it does is it produces the end. So you have free fatty acids and you have glycogen. And when you do anaerobic training, you produce the enzymes that break down glycogen more efficiently into ATP. Whereas if you're doing aerobic training, like working on free fatty acid oxidation, you don't necessarily produce the same enzymes. So that's one of the things that that's one of the reasons why anaerobic high intensity training can actually boost aerobic capacity is the muscles become much more efficient at producing energy and also clearing metabolic waste. And that, because that's the other thing is that if you're running steady state at 70, 75% max heart rate or max VO2, 
you're not going to accumulate a tremendous amount of, of, of metabolic byproduct of hydrogen ions or lactic acid. So the muscles don't become as efficient. Whereas if you're doing a really high intensity work interval and people have to understand that that recovery interval is critical. You need that recovery interval to kind of recycle the metabolic byproduct out and be able to, to go back right into the high intensity work interval again. So you're, you're hundred percent right that the HIIT training can support aerobic capacity and aerobic endurance training, but it's not necessarily the opposite. The only thing that endurance steady state training will do is help with a, re, a little bit better recovery um, intervals on, on the HIIT. You know, so that's, that's one of the cool things. And what they're finding is that like with clients, so where I apply this is at the end of a workout is doing only four to six minutes of, okay, here we're going to go. We're going to either do a Tabata or do a five minute cycle of 30 on 30 off where you go 30 seconds really hard and then 30 seconds of active recovery. And that way, what I like about that from a psychology standpoint is you can do 40, 45 minutes of corrective type, type exercise that really isn't that intense. But then if you do about four to six minutes of, <laughs> of hit of really intense training, the client feels like they, you know, the clients want to feel like they had a hard workout, right? I mean, a lot of it is that psychology of a client comes to go, oh man, my trainer is really tough. But we know if they have the musculoskeletal issues, they really shouldn't be doing a lot of high volume, high intensity training. So being able to scale it and be able to do it in the right way really, you know, helps us work with the client and give them 35, 40 minutes of that corrective that they need. But then also give them about that five, 10 minutes of just really hard, you know, butt kicking, for lack of a better term, that the clients, you know, their perception is what they want. I love that. I've got a, a couple of things to speak to on, uh, on this topic. And one is that I was, doing, I was doing a preparation for high intensity interval training presentation, and I was coming across this uh, this. It was a research study that was done in um, nursing homes. And what they did is they pulled several people out in the nursing homes and they gave them high intensity interval training exercises. Now, the, these are also populations who we look at in the past and we would go, why would you ever? Never would you yeah, ever. Right. Um, and so what they found were some really incredible results. And uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm kind of digging through my notes as we're talking to, to get the, the study and the author. Um, but what they found was a couple of things that that they really exceeded the benefits that that the other folks got where they were doing these kind of traditional um, aerobic style exercises. But it was the qualitative feedback that I thought was so incredibly interesting. And the qualitative feedback were that the people actually enjoyed the high intensity interval training more than the people who were getting on the treadmill or doing the aerobic style exercises. And listen, I know it's different strokes for different folks, but here you are having a sedentary population, people who may not have ever really done any type of exercise like this at all, and they're getting their butts kicked relative, let's let's make sure we understand that, right? Like so relative yeah. getting their butts handed to them, and they enjoyed it more. And that spoke volumes because if anything speaks to me, it's getting people to like doing exercise. And if you can both like it and get more out of it, then that's a one-two punch. Well, no, you're absolutely right, Rick, because what they found, there's also been studies that, that have looked at, that have asked people, do you like, how how comfortable is it to do high-intensity training and or do HIIT-style training? And, and there's been some research to suggest that People like that. It's like they would rather know they got to work really hard for 10 or 12 minutes than to work for an hour. 
So they'd rather get in, work hard, get it done with, and move on. Um, but to really, really quick to follow up, when you asked me about aging, so right now I'm working on my second book that I'm calling Ageless Intensity, and that's where this is kind of this is going. Is a number of years ago I realized, you know, when I was doing working on, I was actually working on a, a workshop for metabolic conditioning, and a lot of this high intensity interval training and high intensity metabolic conditioning, strength and power training, produces anaerobic hormones or uh, anabolic anabolic hormones growth hormone, testosterone, and insulin growth factors. These are all the hormones that build muscle. And there's been some really cool studies of people in their 60s and 70s and found out that not only does this type of exercise really improve their fitness level, but it can change their endocrine profile and actually elevate T levels and elevate GH levels as people get older. And so that's what my next book on is really pouring through that research and saying, okay, if you're in your 40s like us, I'm, I'll be 48 this year, and you're in your 50s and you've been exercising for the last 30 years, you're not relegated to chair aerobics because that's what we've been doing for the last 20 years, right? For older adults, okay, you're over 60. Let's put you in this chair. Let's give you some paper plates. Let's give you a balloon. You know, But think about it. You know, the fitness, our, our modern era of the fitness industry started in the 70s. If you're 25 years old in 1975, you know, now you're you're 70 years old. You know, if you're 25 years old in 1975 when fitness really started booming, and you start you've been working out since 1975, you're they're going to have a much different ability to do a harder rate of work than a sedentary individual. And there's great research by Ball State University um, again in 2018. A lot of cool stuff came out in 2018. Either that or I just haven't followed up with the stuff. But what Ball State did is Ball State went. And they got a group of 70-year-olds have been doing endurance activities their entire life. They got a group of 70-year-olds have been working out their entire life, like casual recreationally exercise. Then they got a group of 70-year-olds that were that did nothing. That was a control group. And then they had a group of 20-somethings. And what they found are the two 70-year-old groups have been exercising for 50 years, had the same kind of muscle biopsies as people in their 20s, meaning that the same anaerobic, that the same anaerobic enzymes, they had muscle, a much better cap, um, capillary density. So again, capillaries are where you get the tissue exchange and the oxygen. So literally what, what that, that research showed um, was that if you exercise regularly and you maintain consistency, you can literally freeze your muscle tissue in time. So if you start working out 25, 30 years old and you be consistent throughout the aging process, you are going to lose some muscle mass. That, that's going to happen naturally. Our, we, we produce different hormones and different things happen in the body. But over the, over the long course of time, you maintain your car. It's like buying a 1965 Mustang, and you have two options. You can throw that 65 Mustang in your backyard, and what's going to happen to it? It's going to fall apart, right? Or if you keep that 65 Mustang in a garage, you change the oil, you change the tire, you change the belt, you drive it regularly, that 65 Mustang could be good as new, you know, 55 years later. And that's really what we're seeing with the human body is you've got to stress the human body to some degree with high-intensity training in order for the systems to operate at an at optimal level. And that's really, and, and now that we're coming on to, you know, people our generation, gener and that's the other thing, Rick, is we're Generation X, right? I still like going out on my mountain bike. I still like being active, you know. I, you know, I don't want to slow down. You know, I got to be mindful of my favorite activities. But, I, you know, people I know, I know guys who are 50, 50, over 50 years old, and they still ride half pipes. They're still popping six-foot airs on, on half pipes. I don't know if you remember the name Matt Hoffman and Tony Hawk. You know, those guys are still, if you follow their Instagram feeds, Matt Hoffman's like 51, 52 years old, and he's still popping 10, 12-foot airs on a bike. Tony Hawk is still shredding the ramp. Dennis McCoy, these are all guys 
that were like the original X Games stars in the 90s, and they're now in their 50s, and they're still riding hard. They're still doing their thing. So that's really what I wanted to do is start understanding the science of, of, the, of how we can maintain our favorite activities. We can't do anything to stop the aging process. That, that we can't stop, right? But what we can do is use and exercise and use it in the right way in order to kind of freeze how time affects our bodies or try to allow us to maintain our fitness level throughout the aging process. I want to add to that story. We had a had a guy that used to be at the YMCA where my mom and dad were members of and uh, in Florence, Alabama, and his name was Mr. Pig, P-I-G-G. <laughs> uh, did you ever meet Mr. Pig? He is 99 years old. And uh, when they asked him, he started working out. My dad sent me a, an article in the, in the paper about him, and I read about him, and he has been working out every day, pretty much since his wife died, uh, when they were in their 70s. And uh, in, the, in the article, the, the journalist asked the question, do you think exercise is what has allowed you to live this long? And he said, I can't answer that. I don't know if it's allowed me to live this long, but it has allowed me to live this well. And that was a profound statement. Well, and that's just it, right, is exercise, what they're finding is, especially higher intensity exercise, it will help boost, it helps boost, boost the hormones that build muscle, but it also elevates something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that's a protein that literally helps build new brain cells, you know, in, in your brain, obviously, it builds new cells in your brain. And that kind of dispels this idea of the dumb weightlifting jock, right? There's research to show that both strength training, anaerobic strength training, anaerobic steady-state training, both elevate levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, allowing people to stay cognitive, have a better cognitive ability later on. And just this re- weekend, I was, I was going through um, some literature, you know, working on my book, and there really is. There's a high correlation between mobility, fitness level, and cognitive ability for people in their 70s. So the people who work out, in their, who work out all the way through the their 70s have performed much better on the cognitive tests than people who are sedentary. And so the message to trainers, I think, Rick, is, out there is that if, you, if you're a trainer in your, your 20s or, or the early 30s and you're working with clients in their 50s and 60s, the message isn't so much on weight loss and appearance. The message becomes, do you want, to, do you want the secret for slowing down the aging process? Do you want the secret for you know, being able to maintain your youth? And that's, that's what I've been doing with Nautilus and Stairmaster is I've been writing our education programs around – Let's look at, you know, yes, weight loss is important. Yes, we all want to look better. We know that. But really, strength training on Nautilus machines, you know, high-intensity interval training on Stairmaster equipment, the evidence shows can really be the fountain of youth. You know, we can't guarantee results, but we can say there's an overwhelming body of evidence to suggest that this type of training can really help you manage the aging process as you get older. Love it. Uh, here's another thing that we – we have some evidence for. I've got this article uh, pulled up by Hyfing and Associates, and they're talking about high-intensity interval training and abdominal fat. And so mm-hmm. what they did is they did a four-by-four-minute uh, work-to-rest interval, right? So you work hard anaerobically, four-minute push, and then a four-minute break. And that was repeated several times. And then they did a, it's a 12-week program, four days a week, 10-minute warm-up, 5-minute cool-down, and what they did is they equated the aerobic exercise 
um, for oxygen expenditure. So basically, you're burning the same amount of calories, but what were the outcomes and the results? And here's what was pretty interesting. Um, the intervention resulted in a similar reduction in body weight or body fat between the high intensity and the moderate intensity group, but there was a significant difference in abdominal fat reduction with the high intensity group. Pre and post test comparison shows statistically significant decreases in subcutaneous fat by 19.5%. So that's pretty significant. But here's what's the other cool part. Its protocol was taken from coronary artery disease patients. Yeah. So again, with the, with the kit and gloves, and we're so nervous about working with people, um, and I did find another research that did correlate a few more orthopedic risks with anaerobic kind of high intensity work versus aerobic, but it was it was hardly significant in its stat and uh, its stats. So what you're looking at is that it's not that much more challenging orthopedically, and yet these results are seemingly incredible that, that these folks are getting. And, and again, we like to give pink dumbbells to people who are of a certain age and yeah. we give them little bands and we give them a chair to sit down in. Um, and I'm not saying that that's wrong, Pete. I'm not saying that's no. wrong. Because I, I, let's be honest, everything is individualized, but there is challenge that can be done. And when challenge and eustress is put on people, then we allow them to recover and they get better and stronger from that. I love the fact that you use the technical term for, for exercise, use stress, positive stress, because a lot of people overlook that because really that's fundamentally that's what we do, right? Exercise is stress imposed upon the body. And, and you're right. And that's, and that's what for years, you know, the approach has been towards older adults is, well, we want to take it relatively easy. But now that we're looking at people who are in their 60s and 70s who have been exercising for 10, 15, 20 years, you don't pull, pull. You don't pull, pull off the brakes. You don't pump the brakes. You be smart about it. You know like the difference is if you're in your 30s, I might say can you, you can do hit maybe two or three days a week as long as you're getting good sleep and nutrition supported. By the time you get your 60s and 70s, I'd probably give you about two days a week with at least two full days in between. And keep in mind, it doesn't mean I throw you right in the deep end of the pool. If I were you know, to use it at a body interval, because I like doing this stuff, Rick, is you don't need to do the four the full four minute Tabata cycle, right? If you, if I were working with Mr. Pig and Mr. Pig was in his 80s and we're just getting to know each other, I might finish the workout session. Okay, Mr. Pig, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to do a couple minutes of exercise, but I'm asking you to do two, two intervals of 20 seconds really hard. I might give him a one minute of a Tabata protocol, meaning 20 seconds really hard, 10 seconds of recovery, 20 seconds really hard, 10 seconds of recovery, and that's it. And build on that because, that, again, that's what the evidence is showing. Is it, And Martin Gabala, um, who I think spoke at the NASM conference a couple of years ago, Martin Gabala is a researcher out of uh, McMaster University in Canada, and he wrote the book, The One-Minute Workout. And I know that sounds like a cheesy late-night infomercial thing to do, but, but Gabala's lab at McMaster has been studying HIT for the sedentary population and has found that like a three-minute warm-up, three 20-second intervals with like a two-minute recovery after each one, and then a two, three-minute cool down, that's 10 minutes, right? But if you do three 20-second intervals, that one minute of high intensity is enough to start promoting health benefits and start, and that's what they've looked at with coronary patients and with really older adults is you start with that one minute. You know, it doesn't mean I take Mr. Pig and say, all right, Mr. Pig, here we go. We're going a 40-minute Tabata class. We're going to do six sets of Tabata interval. Not at all. But what it does mean is we scale it back and then, you know, we can do like 
one of my favorite things to start progression is like you do a one minute Tabata, one minute easy, one minute of Tabata, one minute easy. You know, and you kind of stagger it like that. And then you do two minutes, one minute, two minutes, one minute, or then two minutes recover. Then you do three minutes, one minute recovery, and then you build up like that. So it doesn't mean you jump right into the deep end of the pool. It just means that over a period of maybe four to eight weeks, you progressively start challenging the body. But even in people in their 70s and 80s, when they go through these type of protocols, have some pretty significant outcomes and they, they respond to it. They just have to, they have to have that mindset to know that this is going to be uncomfortable for 20 or 30 seconds, but the health benefits are pretty significant. Just getting started again into some of the high intensity stuff recently with the classes I was doing, and uh, and I, I I went to to see my business partner Aaron at an event that we were doing, and he was like, "What is what's going on with you?" And I was like, "Man, I feel like a hundred bucks right now. Like I just I feel like I found a hundred bucks on the floor. That's how my body feels." And it it wasn't an easy class. Like it was indeed challenging, but. There are a couple things that we know. One is that there is a uh, physiological effect that allows you to feel good. But we also know that when things are challenging and accomplished, there's an incredible sense of pride that goes along with it. So getting on a, uh, a bike and maybe doing uh, 60 minutes, it doesn't feel, it can be challenging, but it's the challenge is making your yourself sit there and continue versus something that is that is hard to do hard to accomplish in the moment and then you get it done and the sense of pride that goes along with that is really huge so you get this kind of euphoric effect of the exercise but then you get this cognitive component to it that just makes you really proud about what you've done well here's here's one cool thing about the high intensity exercise you're 100 right and, and what you said right there rick was absolutely correct is is people that, that if you're working with an older population and you want to start introducing hit to them don't use the treadmill because there are some balance issues and you have to speed up and slow down on the treadmill and, and there there might be some balance issues there a rowing machine one of the assault bikes where you use the legs and the arms those would be much more just a, a stationary bike even a recumbent bike would be much more appropriate so it doesn't mean i'm going to have somebody do treadmill you know, on a woodway curve and have them, you know, do do treadmill interval sprints on a woodway curve because there are some issues. So we need to be mindful about it, like a rowing machine and 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 like or um, rowing machines. My favorite, the assault type bikes are are one of my favorites. Or even even like with Mr. Pig in his 80s, I might have him do a recumbent bike because that 20 seconds of really high intensity on the recumbent. But what you just said though is when you do this type of high intensity training and when you give people a focus, saying I want you to focus on 20 seconds at a time. You're giving them an external focus, and you're giving them a very finite goal, and that can help initiate the flow state. And the flow state is really where – that's where people get into what the athletes call the zone. And in exercise, we get dopamine, we get serotonin, and we also tap into our cannabinoid system in the body. Our body has its own internal cannabinoid system that helps reduce pain. So when people feel the runner's high, you know that's what's happening is your, your body's releasing these, these neurotransmitters to kind of deal with deal, deal all the pain sensation of the physical exertion so literally you can get people high at the gym you, you can get your 70 year old clients high at the gym by having them do little bits of, of interval training because it's going to change it's going to change their brain chemistry pretty significantly i mean this stuff is is really i mean the more and part of it is the more instrumentation that they get and the better the better they can go deeper they can go the electron um, microscope analysis they go oh wow we didn't realize this was happening too or for years, like research looked at one component, they go, oh, well, we didn't realize that this was going on as well. 
So that's really where, you know, kind of is being able to tie, is being able to synthesize all that together and say, well, so what? How do we how do we design the programs that really have an effect? Nice. And I like that incremental build that you were talking about where you've got somebody that maybe just doing a, a normal workout and whatever that means to you, but at the end of it, implementing just piecemeal at the end, you know, at the end of our workout, we're going to do something really hard. Yeah. We're going to go really hard for a short period of time and then it's over. Exactly. That's what people, I mean, because if I tell you, Rick, if I say we're going to do this for three minutes, it's going to be really uncomfortable for three minutes, but it's only three minutes. Can you give me three minutes? You know, yeah. and then people are like, okay, I can do that. And then they feel, then they start feeling comfortable because the whole idea of getting into the flow state is you want to kind of bend people, but not break them, you know, and that's really what, you know, that that's what the military, you know, the military special operations have, have studied the flow state pretty extensively. You know, the athletes have studied it, you know, business level executives. And it's that challenge. It's something called challenge skills, where if I challenge you to do more than you think you're capable of, you become focused on doing that. So if I say, Rick, I want you to do four sets of 30 kettlebell swings. Oh, man, that's a lot. But after that first set, we knock out 30. Is it going to be hard? Sure. But you knock out that one set. So your, your confidence builds to do the next three sets. Then you get through that workout. And you're like, wow, I did it. Yeah, it was hard, but I didn't break. And that's really, you know, that's that's really where we can get into the psychology of what we're doing. And I actually just wrote a, um, I wrote a piece for NASM a couple months ago on how trainers can tap into the flow state with some of their clients, you know, use some of these flow triggers as they're called to really kind of make the, make the training session more enjoyable. Nice. I, I know this about study and in the workplace that it takes about 20 minutes to get into a flow state when you're trying to sit down and write, when you're trying to read, when you're trying to do your job, usually where it's sitting down at yeah. the computer and working, what I'm what I'm trying to get my children to do, right? <laughs> just twenty minutes and you'll be in. And of yeah. course, if you tell him just twenty minutes, he keeps looking at the clock, going, "It's now only fifteen minutes, right?" So he's not ever getting into the flow state. He's trying to get out of this state of movement uh, or our focus. But what we know at least in that world, is that if you can stay focused and involved for 20 minutes, just build into it to get yourself into the zone, then everything else starts to narrow and the line becomes pinpoint. Well, isn't that the, I mean, that's one of the things, that's one of the biggest gifts that we can give our clients once we start working with them in person again is with all this external stuff going on the outside, is that that one hour that we spend with a client or that 45 minutes that, that we spend teaching a class, we can let people forget all that other stuff so they can just focus on themselves for that time. They can challenge themselves to work hard. They can do something physically demanding. And, and real quick, you know, to kind of come back to high-intensity interval training just to share with, with listeners. So f- starting in mid-March, they shut down all the parks and all the trails in, in San Diego and San Diego County you know, for the coronavirus thing. And so I couldn't go out on my mountain bike. So for five or six weeks, I was just doing body weight intervals in, in my apartment. You know, not, it's not very big and, you know, not much space, but I was doing like four minutes of Tabata, doing a couple of different things at four to six minutes at a time, just once per workout. And they just opened up the trails last week. So I've been out on my mountain bike three times in the last week. And my VO2 feels just as good as it was before. You know, there's always that one hill that's kind of like my test. How do I feel going up that hill? And usually I redline at about 170 beats a minute on my on my um, heart rate monitor. And after not being on my bike for six weeks, it was tough, but I still had that aerobic capacity to be able to, to do that hill. So that just, you know, again, that's a test of one and there's no controls, but it just, you know, it was pretty, I was pretty 
pretty surprised. I, I honestly was surprised that doing these bodyweight intervals in my apartment allowed me to maintain the aerobic capacity that I developed uh, before the trails got shut down in mid-March. Nice. I like that, man. Um, and there's also something that's nice about being able to just get outside and, and go after that hill after being stuck for so long. So probably pretty amped to do that. Let me uh, let me pop over to Greg just for a moment. And uh, Greg, I want to ask you uh, just do we have anybody that's in here that's popped in any questions about the high intensity interval training or working with uh, an aging population and applying this kind of stuff or anything else that might be being a talked about in chat yeah one uh, question in regards to uh, the best way to use body weight when it comes to uh, hitting and integrating that I, the interesting thing in, the, in um, Sean's research what they did and, and the spelling of that is s-c-h-a-u-n they used um, they used burpees they used uh, I think they did a man maker exercise they did uh, jumping jacks and they might have done mountain climbers now, one thing I've noticed is that for people, you know, our age and older, Rick, that might have some back issues, might have some issues with their lumbopelvic hip complex, is burpees aren't always necessarily the best exercise. You know, if you're 20-something, yeah, slam your face into the ground, go for it. So, but I would look at like jumping jacks because everybody knows a jumping jack, lateral skaters where you lateral bounce side to side, even running in place. I know that sounds a little silly, but you know, I've done that in group fitness classes and people get into it, you know, especially when you tell them to sprint and get their knees up, you know, running in place would do it. Mountain climbers where your hands are on the floor and you're bring, driving your knees up to the chest. So I'd look at those type of exercises as opposed to um, doing like burpees. And, and you'll appreciate this, Rick. One of my favorite ones I've been doing in my apartment, you remember those old that we, and we learned this from Juan Carlos Santana way, way back in the day. Remember those two arm rubber bands? Yeah, so I do a lot of like alternating rows with those two arm rubber bands, fast as possible. So it's a little bit different than a heavy rope because my neighbors probably wouldn't like me too much if I'm slamming a heavy rope in my apartment. <laughs> but doing those two arm rubber bands as fast as possible is one way to get the upper body involved. Yeah, nice. I also I like doing uh, speed squats. Oh yeah. So how fast can I get my squats? And then certainly adding some jumps to it. So if you're capable of doing those jumps, landing with control then talk about amping the heart rate up with some body weight. That's a, that's a serious, that's a serious event. It is. No, speed squats are great. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Good question about the, the body weight exercises and being able to push yourself anaerobically. So, uh, anything else on that front? Greg? Yeah. John wants to know how long is a good time for a solid hit body weight workout and how many days a week would you actually, uh, recommend doing it? Well, well that, and sorry, but, but that's a great question for length. And that, that's where I come back to that research that, that showed that a four-minute body weight, you know, one four-minute Tabata is all that's necessary. You know, if, if one four-minute Tabata produced, you know, three times a week produced better effects than th 30 minutes of steady-state training on a treadmill three times a week, that's where I would start. You know, it's just one four-minute, you know, body weight Tabata and, and, and build from there. I mean, that's the thing, right, is we get in this mentality, especially here in the U.S., of, of more. we got to do more. we got to do more. But the, the research on, on HIT is pretty equivocal that it, you don't need that, – that if you start doing too much, you create something called the overtraining syndrome where you actually overload your system. You actually – you know, your body will produce more cortisol, and cortisol can turn – protein will, will convert amino acids into fuel. And, and that's one, and that's, so this is where I point this out to people. And one thing I ask, I ask clients and I point out to, if you ever smell your clothes after you work out and it smells like ammonia, that's a pretty good indicator that you've been metabolizing amino acids for energy. 
and we don't want you know amino acids are only used for energy in, in extreme consequences because nitrogen is a component of both amino acid and, and, and ammonia. So if your clothes smell like ammonia after you work out, it's a pretty good indicator that you're burning protein and amino acids and not carbohydrates and fat. So that's really what, what my advice would be to start with one four-minute Tabata. Make it hard, though. I mean, it doesn't mean make it easy. It just means you have to be re- – that last minute should really stink. I mean, that last minute should be really, really uncomfortable. But that's where you start. And, 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 and just if you want to add a second one, the only thing I would do is, is just maybe do one four-minute Tabata for lower body and one four-minute Tabata for upper body, which is kind of how I've structured it. You know, I'll do the bands for four minutes, and I'll do lower body speed skaters and speed squats for four minutes and kind of and call it at that. You know, but yeah, it doesn't need, it's not volume with, with HIIT training, it's intensity. So that's a great question. And two, no more than three times a week because it does take, think about it this way, with HIIT, you deplete glycogen levels in the muscle and it takes, it takes 24 to 48 hours to replace the glycogen in the muscle cells. And if the muscle doesn't have glycogen available to it, the muscle cells don't have glycogen available, that's when amino acids can start being converted. It's called gluconeogenesis, when amino acids start being converted to fuel. And that's one of the things that cortisol will do in the body when people are in an extreme stress state. And uh, I will point out also that I believe it's the ACSM uh, has some recommendations on the uh, anaerobic training, which suggests uh, 75 minutes per week. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, they, they're also guidelines of an average of 150 minutes per week of, of aerobic cardio fitness, right? So you can deduct those 75 minutes from the 150. So don't think that the recommendation is 150 minutes of aerobic and then of anaerobic training an additional 75 minutes. That's not it. Dude, and that is uh, yeah. also one of the things that concerning too is that if you get people that are new to exercise, they think they have to do all 150 minutes. Um, even if you do the 75 minutes and now you still have another 75 minutes of exercise that you're supposed to do. Uh, we used to say this all the time, a little bit of something's better than a whole lot of nothing. So don't feel like you have to commit to everything because it puts people in an all or nothing mentality, which is if I can't get 150 minutes, then I might as well do zero minutes. And that's not true at all. Well, and that's exactly why they've been studying HIT for deconditioned populations because people have this misperception as if, if I can't go to the gym for 30 or 40 minutes, I shouldn't go at all. When in reality, you know, eight to 12 minutes of, of as you just said, of something is better than a whole lot of nothing. No, that's, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this, man. Uh, dude, thank you. Thank you. Is there anything else? Because we've, we've pushed the limits on our 30 to 45 minute podcast uh, as we're getting a little bit closer to an hour. Uh, is there anything you want to add, uh, including the, any ideas of when the, the release date for this book's going to be so we can buy it and then also uh, how people can find you and connect with you. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, on Instagram, I'm Pete McCall underscore fitness. That's Pete McCall underscore fitness on Instagram. And what I've been doing um, is throwing, trying to throw up workout ideas while we've been all you know sheltering in place at home. And then the All About Fitness podcast, I just interviewed Marty Gabala again. I interviewed him a couple years ago. But I reached out to him at the start of all this to get his intake on bodyweight training, and he had some really good insights. So check out the All About Fitness podcast, 
and you can go back two or three episodes. And then, Rick, you'll appreciate this one. I interviewed Dorian Yates as well. Dorian is a, a six-time Mr. Olympia, like how he's uh, how he's staying in shape now that he's almost 60 years old. So that's kind of like, you know, it was, I, you know, it was, it was kind of, that's, that's the only, that's the only interview that's, that's one of the only interviews I've been nervous for for a long time, you know, speaking with, you know, because he was known as a shadow. You know, he doesn't he didn't really do many public appearances. So I was really stoked to get that interview with uh, Dorian and kind of ask him about how he's maintaining his fitness level now. So those the All About Fitness podcast and, and on Instagram are probably the best ways to stay connected. And Ageless Intensity, we're looking at like a November release date. We want to try to get it out. Um, I'm working with Human Kinetics on it. So we want to try to get it out before Christmas. Um, and it really will be, you know, it's going to be, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm halfway through writing it right now. And I just, I love digging into the research and I love the opportunity to talk about it a little bit. So thank you. Man. Well, I wish you the best of luck on everything. And I know one thing about digging into the research, it can send you down a rabbit hole. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's just say Amazon. I've been ordering. I have to keep ordering printer. I keep ordering uh, print cartridges from Amazon because I'm printing so much stuff up. But yeah, I bet, man. I bet. Well, congratulations on the opportunity for another one, and I'm looking forward to getting it. Thank you for being on, and I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, guys. Good to see you, Rick, and good seeing you, Greg, man. I appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity to do that. So, um, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. It's good to have you, everybody. My name is Rick Ritchie. Thank you for being here. This is the NASM CPT podcast and our Facebook Live webcast.